Welcome to the Experts in Sport podcast, brought to you by Loughborough University. This podcast seeks to bring together the worlds of academia and professional practice. If you're interested in the latest research and trends in sport, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe now at iTunes, Spotify or other major podcast outlets. Today's podcast is a special edition to celebrate the launch of a new book, Race, Ethnicity and Racism in Sport Coaching. We had the privilege of sitting in on a conversation between the authors, introduced by Stephen Bradbury and hosted by Jim Lustard. Firstly, thank you everyone um, for taking part in this forum and of course for your respective excellent contributions to the book. Um, we think together we've pr produced a, a, you know, a really good and important piece of work. Uh, the book is the first comprehensive collection of academic work focusing specifically on issues of race, ethnicity and racism in sport coaching and, and we think provides a timely and insightful scholarly contribution to this otherwise marginalised field of study. Um, the book has a significant degree of topicality, certainly in the context of debates around the lack of racial diversity in the sports coaching workforce and growing calls for the implementation of positive action measures such as the Rooney Rule, not just in the US but across a range of national and sporting contexts. I think reflecting the expertise and research interests of the authors, the book has been arranged into three thematic sections, addressing um, the central topics of firstly, representation and racialized barriers in sports coaching, secondly, racialized identities, diversity and importantly, intersectionality in sports coaching, and thirdly, formalized racial equality interventions in sports coaching. Now the book has an international scope and we have contributions from authors drawn from a relatively diverse range of ethnic and gender backgrounds and situated in six countries across three continents. And I am delighted to say that we're joined by authors today from each of those three continents. So by way of providing some brief introductions, um, and as far as I can work out, in order of time zones going from west to east, we have with us today. Uh, and if you just raise your, your hand as I say your, your names, that would be great as a kind of way of introducing yourselves to one another. In the US, we have Akila Carter-Francique from San Jose State University. We have Joyce Olishola Ogunrindi, University of Houston. George Cunningham, Texas A&M University. Jeremy Juru, American University, Washington College of Law, and Dominic Conricode, formerly of Loughborough University, but now residing in Toronto, Canada. But in Europe, we have, in England, Sophie Cowell, from the University of Chester, Daniel Kilvington, Leeds Beckett University, Jim Lusted, Open University, myself, Steve Bradbury, Loughborough University, and in the Netherlands, Jaco van Sterkenberg, Erasmus University, Rotterdam. And finally, a special thank you to Brent McDonald from Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia, who has joined us at 5 a.m. Um, Australian time. Thank you very much uh, for your, your efforts on that score, Brent. It's greatly appreciated. So that's my kind of brief overview and starting point. I'm going to hand back to Jim now um, to begin the discussion section. Thanks, Eve. 
So the purpose of this session really is to uh, bring some of these authors together, some of us together who, um, who contributed to the to the book, to really discuss some of the key themes that have emerged uh, from the book. And they'll be tried to emphasise through the structure of the chapters, to have a chat with each other and to try and share our experiences and, um, you know, our research and our expertise. So the three themes we're going to cover this evening today are firstly, we're going to discuss the range of barriers facing minoritized coaches, um, the multiple barriers, the different contexts, the setting, the experience that people from minoritized backgrounds have in accessing opportunities to sport coaching. The second theme we'll move on to, uh, where we'll discuss uh, what's been done to try to tackle and overcome some of these barriers, um, looking specifically at policies, interventions, and evaluating some of their effectiveness and thinking about what might be done in the future. And then finally, the third theme, we really want to discuss the future research priorities for this area. Where will we go from here? What do we want to focus on as we try and develop this emerging field of study? So we'll kick off with theme one, what the barriers are for minoritized coaches in a sport context. George, could we start with you? I wonder if you might give us a little flavour of uh, your chapter, uh, particularly discussing the um, sort of multi-level barriers that you, you wrote about in terms of um, ways of thinking about these barriers to sports coaching. Sure. And thanks for including me on the call and uh, including me in the book as well. Um, so here and elsewhere, I've found it useful to think about, as you mentioned, multi-level factors and I think of it in terms of macro or societal and then meso, which can include groups or organizations, and then micro, which is more at the individual level. And from a macro perspective, there's a list three, political climate, stakeholder expectations, and institutional racism. I think probably the last one is the most salient and uh, in influencing really all the others. And that's what I think the nice part of multi-level thinking is, is that uh, the recognition that factors at the macro level can influence decisions organizational leaders make, the paths that people seek in their careers, and vice versa, right? So all the levels interact with one another. Um, but certainly, I think institutional institutionalized forms of racism really uh, have a particularly strong influence. At the meso level, um, a lot of our research has looked at bias in decision-making and bias being the umbrella term for things like stereotypes about who we think can and should be in leadership roles, prejudice, which would be more of the attitudinal form, and then discrimination, which would be more of the behavioral form. And then organizational culture and the diversity climate in the workplace. And then at the micro level, it's sometimes tricky on this because some people can view a micro level explanation as blaming maybe the coach uh, for her or his behaviors or activities. Uh, and that's certainly not the case here. And I spent a little bit of time writing about how, you know, the things that happen in our organizations and the things that happen in society influence the decisions we make. They're not made in isolation. So 
with that caveat, uh, some of the research we have conducted and others have pointed to capital investments and uh, identity that people hold and how that influences how others see them and their suit how suitable they are for leadership roles. And then what uh, organizational psychologists call self-limiting behaviors, but that would include things like if people leave the profession or the organization sooner than others, or if they don't seek a promotion, all of those would fall under self-limiting behaviors, which uh, again are influenced by what we see around us, right? So if I don't see anybody like me in a leadership role, the chances of me applying for that role are probably pretty slim. So they all work together. Uh, thanks, thanks, George. Uh, hopefully, George, I don't know if you saw, but in our concluding chapter, we drew upon that kind of model, if you like, the multi-level model to try and bring bring the, the, the book together. And I think it's a really useful model of thinking about it's important to not neglect, isn't it, each of those levels of analysis. And I think in some ways, you know, a lot of our research has done that because of our perhaps interests or priorities or our focus. So, you know, I mean, that's a really fantastic contribution, I think, to helping us think about you know how we how we do that, and we'll we'll come back to that later. I think when we start thinking about future research. Steve, did, did move on to you, maybe Steve. Did you want to say something about your work and 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 your chapter around the barriers that you've you've identified in European football in particular? Yeah, I suppose following on from George and hopefully leading on uh, or leading into what a number of other people uh, are likely to talk about those multi-leveled and um, kind of multi-dimensional practices and experiences of access and treatment discrimination that George referred to seem especially apparent in professional football contexts in Europe and really in two key areas and certainly within this particular chapter I wrote about two key areas firstly in relation to networks and in terms of networks, the kind of unshifting practices of, of uh, institutional closure embedded in the preference for and, and kind of almost exclusive reliance on networks rather than qualifications-based um, mechanisms of coach recruitment, very much who you know rather than what you know. And I think those commonly practiced kind of headhunting approaches um, in coach recruitment are replicative to some extent of the ways in which players uh, are recruited to clubs and premised very much on the on the patronage and kind of personal recommendation of key stakeholders club owners chief executives but also head coaches themselves who have a, a significant responsibility for recruiting their assistants certainly at first team level uh, the problem here is that such practices kind of override uh, opportunities for a more equitable and transparent and, and kind of culturally considered approach to recruitment. They sustain patterns of homologous reproduction within the coaching workforce, very much by perhaps unconsciously favouring coaches drawn from within the dominant white social and cultural networks of the football industry. Where I think my work feeds into a number of other authors in this particular collection is in relation to stereotypes. And I think certainly in European football, the historical and continued existence and expression of a whole range of kind of overt, more inferential racisms also, and what modes of racialized stereotyping uh, have been a key factor, both in coach education and coach um, employment workplaces. And we see those kind of actions and behaviors in some of the kind of culturally misplaced perceptions, racialized assessments made by key decision makers with regard 
regard to minoritized coaches, which very much position them and problematize them as lacking the relevant intellect or attitudinal or leadership skills to coach at the elite level. And of course, such racialized assessments are rarely transferred, if ever, to the review of white coaches who are viewed solely in terms of their um, vocational self rather than minoritized coaches who seem to be viewed in terms of this negatively assumed kind of racialized self. So in, in kind of simple terms, in the minds of key decision makers, for white coach, read the safety option. For black coach, read uncertainty and risk. Um, and so I think those stereotypes and those networks taken together um, have kind of negative deleterious impacts on limiting equality of, of opportunities and experiences and outcomes for minoritized coaches. And I wonder whether that's something that certainly in English football that Dan might be well placed to, to pick up on. Yes, thanks for that. I mean, what an answer that was. We've had the first two answers from George and Steve there, and I, I really do want to read the book now um, more than I did before. Um, and also, I think that you focused heavily on the networks there. And, and, you know, Steve, I think you've published more than anybody on the planet about coaching and English football, especially in, a, in an English context, and also European context as well. And that kind of mirrors the findings that came out within my chapter as well. So it looked at British Asian coaches' experiences within within the game, um, I think mainly around UEFA B and UEFA A, so going for elite-level jobs. And again, some of those findings that we've just talked about resonate with the experiences of the coaches that I interviewed. So there's a culture of whiteness that exists within the game in the sense that there's qualification courses that you attend and there's banter, which is another word for overtly racist jokes that are thrown around, which are unchallenged by the coach educators. These are uncomfortable positions to be in. And for some of these coaches, they've thought about walking away from the game. Um, they need that support. They need th that um, experience to be more welcoming and, and inviting and those instances to be challenged. The next one is around the institutional nature of racism and how that operates. And there's some stories in my chapter about names. And again, statistically, the research shows if you have an, an Asian sounding name, you're less likely to be uh, invited for an interview within, within Britain, for example. Again, studies have shown that and studies have shown that across uh, many countries for many, many years. And that's a prime example of how institutionalized forms of racism operate. The next one is... Steve mentioned before was about networks and this white-to-white -white networking that we have that exists within football. Any other industry probably wouldn't get away with it, but football seems to get away with it year after year. The next one is around the stereotyping and again that inferential racism that we see that British Asians, because they are underrepresented on the pitch, they seem to not possess the understanding of the game. They don't have the racialized bodies that possess an understanding of the game. So they face stereotypes and issues there. And the last one I'll say is about role models and that idea that you can't be what you can't see. There are very, very few British Asians at elite level in professional football, and that's been the case for decade after decade. As a result of that, the lack of visibility, that also feeds into coaches in the game um, who perceive British Asians not to be bothered or interested around football when that's completely not the case. Yeah, thanks, Dad. So we're, we're quite um, 
British centric. Uh, we have been the last uh, few minutes. So I know Brent, you, your your chapter discusses stereotyping in, in in some ways in Australian context. It's always fascinating to 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 read about how how these stereotypes and these kind of racialized forms of prejudice operate so similarly across many different parts of the world. It's, it's quite depressing in a way. Um, do you want to uh, say a little bit, Brent, to speak to your chapter a little bit in terms of, um, you know, following on from Dan and, and Steve's points? Oh, look, I'd love to. Thanks for including me um, this morning. And what a fantastic um, um, volume that you've put together. Really um, interesting. Uh, I suppose the way that my colleague and I, Ramon, uh, approached this chapter was looking on more of a structural level of the role of science in the reproduction or the recreation of reified versions of race. Um, and then looking at that to the way then that influences things like the thinking around the natural and the thinking around suitability. Now, in the Australian context, we kind of looked at this as a, uh, we describe it as kind of a recolonization process, which seems to be occurring within sports spaces in terms of suitability for task of certain minority populations for certain types of work. Um, and this has certainly increased in the Australian context with the more recent migration of um, people from the African continent directly to Australia into this kind of the black athlete. Now, what I'm interested in, what we're interested in is how sports science is actually playing a role in the re-emergence of biological race um, and quite significantly so since the end of the Human Genome Project in 2003. So there's been this, uh, particularly from uh, North America and in the Australian context as well, a, a range of science that's been produced to search for um, the reasons why uh, we have over-representation of certain groups in certain sports. And I think this has a major effect because in the Australian context as a racialised as, as a society born on, on colonisation, uh, where race is the foundation point of the nation, uh, this has an over, it re-triggers a racially primed organ, or, or audience, i.e. a population, to then interpret certain phenomenon um, and I think this has a flow on effect into coaching spaces because uh, the idea of the natural we've heard about the stereotyping we've heard about these sorts of things in, in terms of how they affect on a macro a meso and the micro level I think that that um, the re-emergence of this uh, uh, racialized science which goes unquestioned in sport uh, sports science is, is unquestioned because the evidence is in front of us every time you turn on the television and watch elite sport. So it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy and then it becomes lived on the level of the agent, whether it be um, the white coach or whether it be um, the white athlete or the black athlete or the, um, or the invisible athlete in the Australian context, which is anyone outside of the white-black binary, um, which uh, also uh, is, is, a, is a major issue and that certainly occurs across um, multiple levels. So whilst barriers weren't, wasn't really something we were specifically looking at, we were certainly looking at the, again, at, at the deeper level of this concept of race, Linnaeus's original concept of race from 1758 that continually reappears um, and is back again, I would suggest, in, in the sports science space um, significantly uh, and, and has an impact on racialized societies because the whole thing about race is it's never pulled apart and never dealt with um, appropriately and we haven't had a decolonization process 
in my country. So um, uh, those those legacies and the impact of those legacies continues on in the, the coaching space. I mean, I wanted to save uh, the best to last, obviously, uh, uh, Joyce and Aquila, in a sense, because um, I think your chapter covers so your chapter is so broad, you know, in a sense, um, it covers so many areas. Your focus is obviously on college sports um, and more on gender. You know, the way in which kind of intersectionality needs to be framed right at the center of this debate, you know, which, let's be honest, many of our other chapters don't don't address that. So having had a chance to kind of listen to what what other chapters have have, have said so far around these the the issue of barriers um you know what what what's your sense of um where your work fits into to these um debates i'll let joyce go ahead and and start us off in that that conversation <laughs> good afternoon good evening uh, hopefully i covered everybody and i want to thank uh, the, the editors again for this platform that they've given us. And I think where our chapter helps us to situate the conversation is to take an introspective approach to how we understand and, and interpret or reinterpret uh, where Black coaches are situated in our, in our field. All the chapters and all the recommendations that are given are needed and necessary, but I think it starts with those who the coaches, the administrators, and the af- and our athletes um, taking an introspective approach to understanding how our stories are told, and that's what intersectionality helps us understand is that we're all social beings who are in- who who engage on these um, structural, cultural, individual uh, levels of of understanding who we are, and and we actually inherit a lot of those understandings from, you know, the society that we're in. And so kind of to what Jim said earlier, it's interesting that you're hearing the same stories of people being told across different continents and time zones. So that lets us know that some of these stories may be more inherited than actually um, representative of the lived experience. So that's what we really wanted to bring out in this chapter is that one, when we tell the stories of of Black coaches um, and we situate it within the, the, the college coaching structure here in the U.S., but as we've heard, these same kind of stories continue to, or stereotypes or archetypes apply um, to um, Black people. And it, and those stories particularly, uh, unfortunately, are, are, are doing more damage than good, particularly in spaces where there are not a lot of actual Black bodies there to counteract um, those stories or to tell counter narratives to those, to those stereotypes. And so we really wanted to start or uh, use this chapter, one, to help us unpack where those stereotypes, archetypes, stories, narratives of Black coaches originate. Um, I also wanted to help our coaches and administrators and athletes understand their own story so that they're able to connect with those uh, of Black coaches as well. Yeah, so I, th- I think, you know, we really borrow from the work of Kimberly Crenshaw when we talk about intersectionality and, and work to centralize race in this conversation, because oftentimes we can, you know, look at things, um, which I appreciate from that macro, that meso, that micro level, but then situating and centering the role of race in its operation 
in these spaces um, creates just a slightly different story and soaring to in, in, in our ability to understand and sort of unpack the lived experiences of that individual on the micro level, um, looking at the systemic barriers or even looking at the barriers of the pipeline of coaches coming through the system. And, and are we uh, even having the ability to be looked at to access right um, into these environments and then um, ultimately uh, the experience we have within those environments becomes something that a light is shined on. Um, from a political standpoint, being able to um, understand some of the, the challenges between the, the policies that may be um, instituted um, to for hiring practices. So we talked about the, you know, the Rooney rule um, with, with, with respect to our black males, but how does that play out for our black women? Um, what do they have those particular protections? And so speaking about the sort of the convergence of even looking at Rooney Rule or Patsy Mink from a, a Title IX perspective, um, and then some of the practices um, that have to be unpacked. So while they may not be written in policy, right, what are the, some of those cultural practices that happen in those spaces? And then how do those things manifest with regards to representation or lack of representation in those places? And again, I think as many sort of reiterated in our conversation already, if I don't see myself, the likelihood of me seeking out a position um, to the next level will probably be less because we're not seeing ourselves in those spaces, nor is anybody sort of affirming that through processes of mentoring, um, et cetera, networks. I don't know about you. It's just amazing to hear so many different voices talking to the to, to an issue that, you know, we're all passionate about. It's a, it's a fantastic experience, actually, being part of this. It's, it's, um, thank you so much for your contribution so far. I think, you know, we've got a nice little, really nice little overview there of, of, of barriers and the issues facing uh, minoritized coaches in, in these different contexts. Akila, I mean, you, you very nicely started talking about the Rooney rule there, which, uh, which is a lovely segue into theme two. So should we move on? Um, we'll have a little chat about these policies in, in more detail because a few of our chapters in the book really do focus on this. And I think this is one, you know, one of the strengths of the book actually is, is properly starting to discuss and evaluate some of these interventions um, that, that that are starting to emerge or have have been around for a long time. So, so let's let's have a chat about that theme too. Um, what has been done to try and address these barriers and underrepresentations in a coaching context? Um, Jeremy, I'd like to start with you if that's okay, and then uh, perhaps Sophie and Dom, I might come to you shortly um, to discuss your chapters. But uh, uh, Jeremy, I mean. The Rooney Rule is the place to start, isn't it? Really, when we're talking about this, it's a, it's um, you know, you're you're the expert. Can you tell us a little bit about um, you know, your 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 analysis of the Rooney Rule, um, where it came from, and and you know, your in a sense, you know, what your chapter says about the, the effectiveness or otherwise uh, of it. Sure, absolutely. It's a real pleasure to be a to be a part of this conversation. So yeah, so my chapter explores um, what can be done to break down some of the barriers that we've been talking about, and I, I approach it from a legal perspective initially, and then move beyond it. The idea being that you know they say if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you're a lawyer everything looks like a lawsuit. And I'm trained as a lawyer and I'm around lawyers. I've been a part of the equal uh, employment uh, opportunity uh, movement. 
in the United States. And I found that in this particular context, with respect to professional sports at least, lawsuits haven't been terribly helpful with respect to coaches getting opportunities uh, with professional sports clubs and therefore diversifying the ranks of coaches for a few reasons. I talk about the fact that it's a very, very small community, this is the professional sporting community in the United States. And consequently, um, people are understandably concerned about being a plaintiff in a lawsuit and therefore um, being um, uh, derided or kind of excommunicated from the, the sport community because they raised uh, a ruckus about issues of discrimination. Uh, if you are able to get a plaintiff, then you run into a real serious problem in the American courts, which defer pretty heavily to defendants, employers, when they give their reasons for um, hiring somebody uh, in any position. There's an idea that we courts shouldn't second guess what an employer feels is important to be able to do a job. Uh, if an employer says, well, this person had just, they had that quality, they had it, they had that X factor, Courts are unlikely to look behind them. And that's particularly the case in sports. Courts are afraid of sports. They don't want to get involved in second-guess uh, sporting clubs. And so the, my, my chapter is called when the, when the Law Won't Work, and it explores uh, when the law won't work, when, when lawyers can't use lawsuits to diversity, uh, to, to diversify coaching context, what can they do? And one initiative that took hold in the National Football League is one that Akila mentioned, which is the Rooney Rule. Uh, and the idea behind the Rooney Rule is that for any open head coaching position or general manager position, a club has to interview at least one person uh, of color. The idea being that if that club, the ownership, the decision makers of that club get down and sit and talk with someone else about American football, about the sport, then they are going to have um, – uh, a respect for a fuller sense of what that someone else, that minority candidate uh, um, could do in the position than they otherwise would. Uh, and so my, my chapter explores that approach as a means of breaking down barriers with respect to uh, diversity and coaching in the United States. But it also talks about the weaknesses of the rule, the narrowness of the rule, the possibility that uh, the rule was, will result in stigmatized interviews or result in sham interviews, interviews where the decision maker isn't really contemplating hiring the interviewee, but is just hiring them because the rule says they have to. So I explore the Rooney Rule concept, its strengths, its weaknesses, the traction that it's got in contexts outside of the National Football League in the United States and outside of sport in the United States and indeed outside of the United States for example, in the United Kingdom with respect to the English Football League uh, and the FA. I talk about the strengths, weaknesses, and lessons to be learned from the application of the rule. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for setting that up. Um, I mean, the Rooney rule has really has left, left, you know, left a legacy, hasn't it? I mean, it's one of the most high-profile um, legal rules and, and um, you know, policy interventions um, around race equality in any sector, um, let alone sport. So, you know, I think you have to bear that in mind, I think. Um, and obviously it start, It seems to have some, you know, credibility, some credence um, in other in other areas too. It's mentioned quite often, isn't it, in, in, in non-sporting settings as well as sporting settings as something to, you know, work towards. So Sophie, Sophie and Dom, your, your chapters are looking at, you know, an early 
valuation, if you like, of how these these softer soft ideas of renewable are being put into um, the English Football League, which is the, the just the one tier down from the Premier League, but still professional football. And so, for you, looked at this idea of reflexive regulation, the way in which this kind of voluntary code um, came in. Do you want to, to speak a little bit to that? Um, and then, Dom, I'll ask you to, to talk a little bit about the the, the mandatory code, uh, which came in f- in the same um, league. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. And it's great to follow Jeremy as well after all this work on the Rooney Rule in the NFL. Um, So as you said, so my chapter looked at the EFL's regulation or their recruitment codes that they've introduced, um, which is in two parts. Like I said, Dom's going to look at the the mandatory aspects, but my chapter looks at the the voluntary aspect of this. So um, it says that clubs can um, interview at least one black, Asian or minority ethnic candidate uh, in instances where they run a full recruitment process. So obviously, I think straight away we can pick up kind of um, issues or potential kind of barriers with that. I think in light of the discussion that we've had around the the barriers that minority coaches face in terms of networks um, and the way that coaches are recruited, I think having the codes at voluntary at that level, um, I think it does have some issues when it only applies when when full recruitment processes are run. Um, it basically is quite a big loophole for clubs to to avoid following that. But yeah, I also took kind of a similar approach to Jeremy in a way by looking at this from the legal perspective. Um, and I think like Jeremy said as well, I think it's been similar over here as well. There are existing legislation which focuses on, which is quite reactive. It's sort of anti-discrimination legislation. It provides people with a means to kind of bring a lawsuit if they've been discriminated against. It hasn't really done a great deal to promote equality or to promote diversity, and particularly within coaching. I think it's like the issues that Jeremy talked about as well. Um, you know, you don't really want to be that person that has brought a lawsuit it probably might not help you moving forward in terms of securing a position um so i looked at it from the reflexive regulation angle like you said so reflexive regulation basically is a legislative legislative approach where um instead of say instead of having like a a, a national piece of legislation which says this is what everyone's going to do or this is what you can and can't do it basically provides the space the legal space for employers and organizations to develop measures that are kind of suited to their organizations so positive action within the uk is is an example of that um the 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 legislation around positive action is is quite vague it's quite broad it doesn't even have a legal definition for example which can be quite frustrating at times but it means that there's there's, there's quite a lot of scope there um and unarguably that is like a reflexive approach because you're giving employers or organizations that the scope to come up with their own solutions um and arguably you could say that's what the efl has done they have looked at the problem that they have within their leagues um and kind of try to develop their own way of of combating that problem with the space that they're permitted. I think obviously it goes without saying the similarities between the FL's code and the Rooney rule. Um, There's some argument around whether they've done that or whether they've just looked to introduce a version of the Rooney rule and thought that um, you know, in, in that level, it's probably not going to be quite as strict or have the sanctions associated to it. So it's a somewhat watered down version. Um, but my chapter really kind of looks at that regulation and that code from this reflexive approach to see how, how it fits into that legal framework um, and how it may have been developed. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah. I mean, your, your work is really important, you know, and uh, particularly in a, in a UK context, you know, um, yeah, well, you're one of the few people writing in this area, and I think um, you know we, we need more more from you, Sophie. So, um, 
hopefully this might spark some some future collaborations and dom you know just following on from that really you know uh, your your chapter it's great to have two chapters on a, on the similar sort of area but slightly different you were looking at the um the mandatory code yes um again do you want to just speak to say say some things you'd like to say about that that you know what you found and stuff yeah yeah definitely uh thanks for organizing this first of all the editors of the book and great really honored really to be here on this uh call today um so yeah my chapter is written in uh conjunction with steve um and we looked at the english football league mandatory code of coach recruitment so this is sort of the sister code really to the volunteer code that Sophie mentioned uh however this applies at the youth level of men's professional football in England. Um, so in the youth academies where ages of players range from about seven years old to up to about 21 years old. Um, so judging by the name, as you can probably guess, the code has is obligatory, really. Clubs, academies are meant to follow this. There's not really the voluntary loopholes, so to speak, that exist in the code that Sophie spoke about. Um, so we examined the operational and attitude and implementation of this code in youth academies. Um, so talking about the procedural uh, implementation, we found that the code did actually have quite a positive impact in providing more opportunities for black, Asian, minority ethnic coaches to take part in recruitment processes, first of all, and to have led to some significant gains uh, in increasing the employment of black, Asian, minority ethnic coaches in academy settings in England. However, Perhaps the most significant focus of our chapter was the attitudes of those senior decision-making personnel in academies towards implementing the code. Uh, so in respect to the attitudinal implementation of the mandatory code, uh, we describe a race-conscious and a race-neutral approach amongst key decision-making personnel at club uh, academies in their implementation of the mandatory code. So regarding race-conscious approaches, uh, this was amongst senior decision-making personnel that recognize the salience of race and they recognize the existence of at least, at least some sorry of the racialized inequities embedded within the coach recruitment process at the youth academy level uh, they valued diversity amongst coaching workforces it was something they felt offered a variety of benefits to their coaching workforce uh, and on the whole they viewed the manager code as a useful policy tool uh, which they meaningfully engaged with. Uh, on the other hand, and these were perhaps more prevalent, more frequent opinions or attitudes, were race-neutral approaches, uh, which downplayed the salience of race, really. Uh, there was a widespread lack of recognition of the existence of racialized barriers and coach recruitment processes in, in youth academies. Uh, these senior decision-making personnel, they didn't really value diversity in coaching workforces. It was something seen as secondary, if it mattered at all to them. And this really underpinned a lack of organizational buy-in to the code. Uh, and there was merely a, a symbolic engagement, really, amongst these personnel with the code. And what we argue, really, we, our chapter was informed by critical race theory and really due quite heavily on the work of Vanilla Silver. Uh, we argue that these race-neutral approaches were particularly prevalent when there was a dominance of liberal ideologies of colorblindness, meritocracy and race neutrality amongst uh, senior decision-making personnel. Uh, so more broadly, these staff often viewed the coach recruitment landscape as inherently fair and free of racial bias. Often these, and they're often white staff who express these 
perspectives also adopted colorblind perspectives, uh, arguing that success in football coaching was often or was solely due to talent, ability and hard work, really stripped these contexts of their racialized underpinnings and effectively argued it was individual and cultural deficits on the part of black, Asian, minority ethnic coaches, which underpin their representation rather than the, these everyday routinized recruitment pr practices. So yeah, and then as people have mentioned this, I think Dan mentioned this, all the sort of culture of whiteness within coach recruitment, we argued this really this tendency, this displayed a tendency of uh, powerful white groups in sport to sort of universalize their own experiences as the cultural norm, as if to say, this stuff hasn't affected me, so where's the issue, really? Uh, and then on the whole, we argued it wasn't really surprising amongst these senior decision-making personnel that they expressed a resistance towards the code when for them there was no issue in rep in underrepresentation or barriers faced by black asian minority ethnic coaches in the first place for them they didn't recognize racism and they didn't see the need for anti-racism so to speak in this context so yeah we make a we made various recommendations from this chapter and i assume hopefully we'll be able to discuss some of those later in the, the presentation but yeah that's about what the chapter looks at and thanks for letting me explain it Oh, thanks, Tom. Yeah, uh, very, very resonant with some work I've done in the past around policies and the reception of policies. I think we have to be very, very careful of policies just being the answer, don't we? Because quite often these sport organisations, they, they whack a policy out as a defence mechanism, as in a kind of a sense of, look, this is what we're doing, as sort of um, you know, a, a performative form of, of equality and diversity. Yeah, we have to be we have to be cautious, I think, of of those of those policy initiatives if they're not followed up, um, and that's what well, I was interested in your uh, chapter, Joyce and uh, Akila, because you didn't just focus on policy. You t you talked about other ways of you know potential interventions we can have. I've got, uh, for example, mentoring and uh, and advocacy. Do you want to say one or two things uh, about? You know, additional forms of things that can be done and that have been done to try and, um, you know, break down some of these uh, barriers. Yes, I, I want to piggyback on what Dom highlighted in his in his chapter with those predominantly uh, uh, the white coaches and players in these spaces not being able to understand the live experiences of their their racialized counterparts, and that's why I think intersectionality is so important that um, in centering everyone's lived experience, you know, what it, um, and, and going to your question, Jim, about what these solutions look like, um, because it really starts with us seeing each other as, as human, right? And, and you, uh, as a white person, you had mentors, you had people that look like you. That's a, that's a solution, right? You know, that these solutions are not far-fetched and they're not, uh, they don't take a, they don't have to take a lot, particularly on the, the macro and the interpersonal levels to, to really create change. And so just looking at intersectionality, we talked about the networking, right? Um, people that look like you, people who can sponsor you, uh, and whether that's, telling you about a conference or telling you about a position that's open. We know that that access is 
almost have to battle sometimes that a lot of these opportunities to coach are not even known because of the lack of networking or a mentoring available. And so uh, continue, but I really wanted to talk to hone in on what Dom has illuminated so well that we really need to step back and think about what made me successful as a coach. And, and those are the, the solutions are right there. Yeah. I think, um, you know, on that, that same vein, mentoring is gosh, what I've been pushing throughout everything that I do, uh, because it can just be so impactful to an individual to know that somebody is thinking about me, somebody cares about me and for mentoring to go beyond this notion of in order for me to mentor you, I have to look like you, or I have to be the same gender. So really, you know, one of the things that we talk about and encourage is there is value in cross-racial mentoring. There is value in cross-gender mentoring. And uh, again, it's one of those things where you begin to establish the relationship with that individual, understanding that it may start out as mentoring and then it may evolve into eventually serving as a sponsor, as, as Joyce spoke about, or turning into a champion to say, hey, you know, I'm not at the same institution, but I do know this person, I do know their work, and we need to really consider them to be in that pool. So understanding that, um, you know, football has that, NFL has that, that sort of protection of the Rooney rule, but that is not throughout um, our respective spaces and places. And so when those policies aren't in place, uh, we have to begin to examine or self-examine our own cultural practices, understand where we are as an individual when it talks about cultural competence, but understand even where we are as it pertains to the culture of our organization and what do we stand for and being able to sort of reevaluate that process and and recognize that, you know, we can make change, but a lot of that is going to have to come within the way that we do our everyday and um, taking an opportunity to do, I guess, for lack of a better term, a sort of a, a diversity audit um, and understanding of where we are as an organization and an anti-racist sort of cultural um, competency <laughs> um, space. And there's there's those tools out there and there's organizations um, even outside of sport that work to come in and work with specific athletic organizations and and help those individuals do the work once they're ready to make that change. Yes, I I also wanted to add from a policy standpoint, oftentimes we get asked the question, I teach sociology and sport and, you know, why do we have to have a Rooney rule? Why do we have to have Title IX? And I think this is an opportunity to turn those questions on its head and say, why don't we have that, those same type of rules for white men? And then that will help us to start unpacking, uh, you know, some of the things that racialized and gendered individuals face and why we have to have a policy, but more so, again, going back to how we now think about the solutions to help these individuals. Just to add, we're, we're in a prime space for it now, especially in the U.S. Um, with the confluence of, you know, between COVID as we're experiencing globally um, and the racial unrest that's, that's taken place um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, we're in a space and time where I think some of these walls will come down, where people will be willing to address some of these challenges. And so, again, I'm, 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 I'm glad and, and, and I'm very excited to be a part of this book because the time is now. I think what each of you all have shared um, is uh, some best practices that can 
can help these organizations move to um, a place of, you know, fully inclusive, you know, multicultural organization in the way that they think, do, act, and respond to the the change efforts. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Akira. This is a really interesting time. It's a really depressing time, but it's 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 fascinating in the sense that, you know, from from my perspective, my work on this on this area. My work for the last 10, 15 years has been to try and convince people that that uh, racism still exists and um, in sport, you know, and to say, look, there are problems in sport. And these are the this is my evidence to show. And um, on the one hand, you've got now this opportunity, this space has opened up for everyone to suddenly start being interested in, uh, you know, almost the sociology of race. But at the same time, you've got a much, much more vocal group of people who are very, very resistant to the the existence of, of, of racism. So it's almost now become, in the UK at least, quite acceptable to say, uh, you know, white lives matter, for example, and, um, you know, really kind of saying, what about me, you know, and, and challenging the very existence of, of, of racism. So it, it, it it's, it's a funny time, I think, you know, because it opens up that space for, for conversation about racism. But equally, I've never felt more in a more of a hostile environment, you know, in terms of talking about racism than I have at this point. So, Steve, I've got the feeling you were itching to come in. Uh, did you want to say anything? You've not said anything for a long time. Yeah, that's highly unusual. Uh, uh, just to kind of, I'm conscious of time, really, um, and just to kind of bring this particular section to a close, to, to try and summarise, I think, what, what people have said and, uh, and perhaps also offer some of my own assertions here. It seems to me that thus far, and I've kind of picked up on this from what I've read in all of your work and, and the things you've discussed this uh, today, I'm not going to say this evening, but today, thus far sport seems to have ho- offered a kind of series of single level or single axis kind of solutions to what are multi-level and multi-dimensional and intersectional kind of problems. And as a result, we shouldn't be surprised it's engendered some kind of mixed outcomes. Because on the one hand, measures to kind of educate and empower minoritized coaches, where where there has been uh, evaluation of this, it's shown that it's clearly engendered some kind of key developmental benefits for those coaches. However, Simultaneously, it's kind of left the structures and the cultures which underpin racialized inequalities as kind of unchallenged and untouched. It's targeted the individual and not the the, the kind of structural issues. On the other hand, measures such as the Rooney Rule, designed to kind of um, ensure more equitable processes of coach recruitment, at least... Uh, as in the case with the Rooney Rule, when supported by a process of monitoring and enforcement and compliance, which of course doesn't exist in the in the EFL codes, clearly has opened up some previously closed operational practices, but again, simultaneously, has left the attitudes of those charged with responsibility for those policies uh, unchecked and unchanged. Um, and so it seems to me, and we, we've argued this, and I think all of us in, in different ways have argued this uh, in our respective work in this book and, and elsewhere, that there needs to be a much more holistic and kind of unified um, approach to tackling these issues. 
which feature, I think, three areas. The development and implementation of robust policy interventions. So work here might focus on both recruitment policies and development programs. And, and I think as, as I think it was Akila just mentioned, um, there needs to be clear policy goals and actions, the collection of baseline data, monitoring and evaluation of, of kind of progress over time. Little of which happens presently, it seems to me. Secondly, there needs to be the development and implementation of education and training programs for key stakeholders. Much of what we started this discussion uh, around was issues around stereotypes and ways of thinking, and we've, we've just come back to it uh, in, in this part of the discussion. So educational programs for key stakeholders might involve educating people on what constitutes institutional racism, what constitutes racialized stereotyping. It might focus on promoting the benefits of cultural diversity. And that kind of educational work, I think, might also help contextualize the relevance and the applicability of the kind of policy interventions that we want to see. If those who are charged with implementing these policy interventions better understand why they need to exist, they are more likely to implement them. And finally, I think here, and a number of people have touched on this, developing and enhancing networks, um, social capital and opportunities for minoritized coaches. Um, might be physical and online kind of networks, might be formal or informal mentoring and advocacy programs. Establishing sport-specific databases or kind of ready lists for elite-level minoritized coaches, which can be accessed by elite-level sports clubs, um, who know then that there is this cohort of coaches out there who are ready and able to fill those roles. So taken together, and, and to pick up on what a number of people have said, all of this work really is designed to challenge and disrupt and dismantle those kind of processes of whiteness. Whiteness as a kind of powerful structural and cultural practice. To challenge the kind of routinized um, practices, normative arrangements of coach recruitment, but in a much more unified, holistic, coordinated and kind of well thought out way, not just half a policy here and a half a policy over there and hopefully somehow it'll all fall together. It won't. It needs to be structured and organised. That is as much as I'm going to say on that topic, Jim. So on to the final section, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time and I think, um, you know, Steve, you've covered, you've, you've wrapped up uh, a lot of our discussion really nicely. So I wonder if we just have a very short discussion, you know, for anyone who wants to come in, uh, Yako, you know, you've not had a chance to say anything yet, Yako. So um, let's 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 have you to have a chance, but also anyone else, just in terms of speaking to where we go from here. Um, and, you know, I think Steve's come up with some really useful recommendations, you know, that uh, we certainly want to think about following up. Um, but what about our research? You know, what about this this research field? What what should our focus be as we move forward? And I mean, as I, I guess there's no right or wrong answer to that. But, you know, where are we going? I don't know. Yako, do you have any thoughts on you know, where we want to be going from here, where you plan to go, you know, with some of some of your research around um you know support coaching yeah thanks uh, uh, jim so yeah i 
what I would like to, you know, to do first of all is invite you all to the Netherlands and then uh, talk to our football association because they're, they've, yeah, they received quite a lot of money to, to, you know, to combat, to challenge racism on, on different levels, but they seem to have a hard time. I already actually wanted to have Jeremy over. I invited Jeremy, right? Uh, but yeah, the, the COVID-19 crisis, yeah, made it impossible. Steve or also, I invited him. So, uh, you know, I think it's good to, to use each other's knowledge on this. Um, but you know what I want to connect? Um, um, I want to connect a little bit to what Steve just said and also Akila before that. Um, and and that, that also relates to my own chapter. You know, I do a lot of work on the media as well, uh, on media, uh, sports media. Um, and Akila said we should also look at our own practices, right? Self-reflection, educational work, which Steve mentioned. What, what I noticed in the interviews I did uh, with the minority ethnic coaches in the Netherlands um, is that they really uh, consider the media stereotypes as a barrier, as an obstacle, right? The, the you know, black, uh, especially black men being seen as very athletic, naturally athletic, but not good leaders. So it was a barrier to them on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, and, and let alone that's only men I interviewed. I mean, from the data, we know that minority women you know, they are nowhere in the in the leadership position. So that's even a harder, tougher position to be in. Um, but what I also noticed, and that was quite remarkable, is that on the one hand, they said the stereotypes hindered them. They were an obstacle. But half an hour later, in one and the same interview, they themselves used the same stereotypes, uh, being a coach, talking about their players. They said, yeah, of course, I want to, you know, for instance, have that player, that black player on the side because he's fast. So that to me, that meant that these stereotypes are so, uh, they permeate society to such an extent that kind of everyone seems to use them. Uh, so educational work in that respect is important. We know that in particular, yeah, white, you know, white people in, in, in you know, and they are in the leadership positions generally. They in, in particular tend not to see those stereotypes. They tend not to reflect on them. So there should be educational work. But my interview show that it's more than only that group that should be, you know, made aware of that. And so that, that was kind of what my, what my chapter showed me, uh, kind of this relationship between media stereotypes and, and, uh, and, uh, and the leadership positions. So thanks for that. And uh, yeah, it's great to, uh, to, to see, to hear all of you after reading uh, all the chapters, you know, so. Uh, yeah, um, Brent, I mean, you, you got up at five o'clock in the morning for us. So um, I think you need to have one of the, one of the last words. Um, where, where, where's your research taking you, Brent? And, and you know, what do you think the important areas for you to, to, to focus on, I guess, perhaps from an Australian context in particular? Yeah, look, it's it's really interesting in the Australian context because uh, this uh, meritocracy and then the sort of neoliberal logic that pervades sporting spaces is really evident. And there's a real absence of any sort of um, frameworks that, uh, we've heard discussed in, say, the United States or uh, or in uh, in English football uh, that apply to the Australian context, um, and I think the the research that we're trying to continue on with is to continue working in in the lab, and but seeing it like seeing how like these these universities that produce all these experts in these fields now, which is huge. So, you know, you have to have a degree now to become a coach in Australia. It becomes a production line. And when they go into these spaces, then they have to study all these bioscience subjects that reaffirm some of these things. So this intersectionality of where, of of how the system works is is really difficult to pull apart. I'm I'm really interested in now looking at at trying to intervene on on sporting organizations to take some of this or well, how do you affect change 
Um, you know, if you've got 40% of your playing base are Pacific Islanders, but you've got no Pacific Island coaches, then there's clearly something not quite right in that space. And of course, this is a very masculinized discourse as well. So, you know, the, the issue for, for, for women in this space is, 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 is another, another problem again. Um, and obviously from the post, from the colonial perspective, which is, you know, the Australian context, um, we have our own contextual issues uh, in terms of, you know, hyper-diversity in places like I live. Thanks so much. It's been really great to have you. Um, I, don't, I think maybe we're, we're, we're on the last word. I wonder, Jeremy, you know, you've been, you've been reading and researching this, the Rooney Rule and, and you know, the legal um, implications of it for for many years. I wonder where you think uh, where, where we're going, but also where I guess where you're going in terms of you know your interest in the Rooney Rule. You know, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've been focusing on this for some time, as all of us have in this realm, and um, and I will say that it you know the the work is it sometimes dispiriting. So, for example, in the Rooney Rule context. When the rule first came into play in 2003, uh, there was one head coach of color and zero general managers of color in the 32-team National Football League. And over the course of the next five, seven years, those numbers jumped up to eight, nine head coaches of color, five, six uh, general managers of color. And we were plateaued there for a while. And in the last few years, the numbers have dropped back down to uh, roughly where we were in 2003, 2004. And so I think the key thing, so for, I mean, one thing that I'm researching is uh, this concept with respect to the Rooney Rule of two in the pool, that uh, the Rooney Rule requires one person of color to be interviewed for these positions. Um, but a lot of research indicates that one person of color really isn't going to move the needle. But if you have two people of color being interviewed, or if you use the Rooney Rule uh, concept in a, in, a, in a context with respect to gender, two women uh, being interviewed for an opportunity, then the likelihood of a person of color or a woman getting the opportunity jumps exponentially. So that's one piece that I've been researching in particular. But I think the bigger point for me is that we all continue our research. That is to say, this can be fatiguing work. Sometimes it feels like um, you know, I'm knocking my head against rocks. And I imagine maybe for all of us, that's, that's the case. Um, but particularly in this moment, you know, with what we see going on in the world right now, our research, the work that we're doing, uh, is as important as ever. So I would just encourage us all to continue pushing forward with the research, uh, with the work, because um, ultimately, in the end, I do believe it'll pay off. The apposite words of Jeremy Juru seem as good a place as any to bring this discussion to a close. Beyond adding a few additional summary comments as to potential future research priorities. In this respect, each of the contributors to this forum and to the book more broadly have suggested in one form or another that future research should focus on the multi-leveled, multi-dimensional and intersectional ways in which racisms and racialized exclusions operate in sports coaching contexts and should, always, uh, should also offer a critical examination of the implementation and effectiveness of interventions designed to address racialized inequalities in these settings. In doing so, 
Research of this kind might focus on how such issues are played out across different national and sporting contexts and with respect to different and differently minoritized groups. Importantly, such research might seek to prioritize the exploration of intersections of race and gender, and with particular regard to the doubly marginalized experiences of minoritized women. And this latter point is relevant, not just for the sports coaching context, but also speaks directly to the white male dominated environs of sports academia itself, and the disproportionate male orientated research focus of many race and sports scholars. In this respect, it's the contention here, shared by contributors to the forum and to the book, that future research in this field should do much more to foreground and illuminate the historically subjugated testimonies of minoritized women and men, whose experiences and perspectives have traditionally been excluded from, but which remain subject to, dominant majoritarian narratives on race and racisms in sport and sport coaching. And relatedly, academic scholars might do much more to acknowledge, but also reflect on the ways in which their own racialized and gendered identities and social, cultural and political positionality impact on all aspects of the research endeavor and the process of meaning making and knowledge production. Finally, we reiterate that the contributions to this forum and to the book more broadly are intended to act as an intellectual stimulus to other scholars and practitioners to extend empirical and critical analysis in this important field of study and to embed the principles and practice of equality, diversity and inclusion within sports coaching settings globally. Thanks for listening to this special edition podcast on race, ethnicity and racism in sport coaching. See you next time.